0: You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. With us now is Chris Freund, and Chris is co-head of SA Equity and Multi-Asset. And the reason I'm speaking to Chris today is because he came up with what I would describe as a magnum opus. And the title of this piece is what I think I've learnt about picking shares, and that's his words, not mine. And what I like about this, Chris, and welcome, by the way, is that you say what I Thank think you. I've learned about picking shares, because that implies that you're going to learn more as your career progresses or, you know, <laughs> declines, whichever yeah. you like to say.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Lindsay. So you start out, you enter this industry, normally having come from university, and you say, watch out, world. You know, I'm going to show you how to invest. And by the time you get to the other side of your career, in sort of twilight years, you've taken such a beating from the markets that you're not sure you've learned anything. But you have made a few mistakes along the way. And that's really what prompted this piece, as you discussed, as yes. you mentioned it, is is to sort of share… Share some of the mistakes I've made in my long investment career. So hopefully some of the sort of more younger people entering the industry today can avoid them or make them less often, put it that way.
0: It's very interesting because as you get older, you start to look back and say the testosterone fueled world of financial services, which is in the old days, which is probably when you and I both started in this business, is now not so much to the fore. What happens is you actually start to become a little bit philosophical and you say to yourself, well, you know what? It's not quite what it seems. And you come up with an agenda here and you say the following. There's four pieces we're going to uh, cover in this podcast. Interrelationship between economic cycle and equity market behaviour, so important at the moment. Uh, Number two, investment philosophies or styles... Number three, sector considerations. And number four, general investment views. And it's a massive piece, and it's really interesting reading. Even I was interested in it, and I have the attention span of a gnat. But let's start with interrelationship between economic cycle and equity market behavior. And as I said, with interest rates going up and inflation rising and stock markets doing different things, what do you make of this first point in your piece,
1: okay, sure, I will get into that in a second, but I want to have sort of two provisos here before we kick off and we get into it. Mm. One is that clearly everything I say from this point on is's it's, it's, these are purely subjective views. Um, you know that' it's, it's not meant to be the holy grail of investing. There are probably quite a lot of things which we're going to discuss which people won't agree with, but that is hundred percent fine because you know there's many ways of investing. And secondly, it's it's also meant it's it's not going to teach uh, or inform people who've been in the markets for a long time too much. It's it's more designed for for people entering the markets or haven't been in for very long. So with those two sort of uh, health warnings, kicking off the first point, I've always been a macro guy. I've always been massively interested in exactly this, which is the which is a sort of relationship between asset markets and predominantly equity markets and where you are in the economic cycle. Because yeah. I've had the view that that forms the sort of the the dominant part of any asset allocation discussion as to which asset class you should be in at which stages. So it's also however useful to know what causes bear markets, what causes you to lose a lot of money every now and then in, in equity markets. And and there are really three types of bear markets. And, and why it's useful to know the difference between them is because what comes after losing this lot of money really does vary depending on what caused it in the first place, what type of bear market it was. So so recessions normally cause bear markets. But the first one we, we tend to have is what's called a sudden shock, which by definition is unforecastable. Things like 9-11 planes flying in or wars or health scares with this yes. COVID. I mean, these are these are sudden shocks. They're not economic-related per se. And markets usually recover quite quickly from this type of, you know, sudden loss of, of equity prices or bear market because there's not a lot to fix. You just have to get over the trauma of whatever caused that uh, sudden shock. And then it's, it's back to the races again because there's no massive economic imbalances to fix.
0: Just before we go mm. on, w- sure. what I would like to point out is that you talked about 9-11. Okay, it was a moment in time. It was ghastly and the market fell. And then, of course, it came back because it didn't really affect the economy of the world's largest economy, the United States. But when you Correct. get, to, when you get to something like COVID… Uh, The the war in Russia and between Russia and Ukraine is something that we may touch upon later, but maybe not. But the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way that people behave. And behavior is very important to an investment manager like yourself at 91.
1: Yes, it has. I'm I'm not disputing that. But COVID by itself, you know, once it went, there was no as I said, underlying economic imbalance. There was no over The banks weren't broken or there wasn't sort of a, a massive credit crunch that was caused. It, 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 was, it was horrific and it had an economic impact, but you could look through it Because you knew that once the sort of vaccines had been announced in, gosh, that was about November 2020, that it was a matter of time before people were vaccinated and started to, you know, have more protection, etc., and economic activity would, would recover. So, I'm not saying downplaying it, but it's different to sort of a, a one that's caused by sort of economic imbalances. And the second cause of bear markets usually is a type that was caused in 2008. So these are what I call financial recessions where the banks go crazy and they over to everyone around the world, sometimes with exotic instruments. And property markets go crazy because there's so much credits out there. And sometimes it gets even worse, because people borrow in, in, in hard currency, in, and, and, they, and when the balloon goes up, they, they can't actually repay that money. So that was an example of that we saw was in Thailand or in Asia in the sort of late '80s. So those type of recessions take a long time to fix, and markets take a long time to recover. Because the banking sector needs to be recapitalized, essentially, from their previous excesses. You normally have to split banks or the banking sector into good and bad banks, and they need a lot of government help often in recapitalizing them. And and how fast they get recapitalized and fixed determines how quickly the markets come back up. You know, Japan took decades to do it. The U.S. did it very quickly post-2008, and Europe took a lot longer to do it, and hence it took a lot longer for them to recover. But the third type of recession or cause of bear markets is what I call the sort of vanilla and common and garden recession. And and that's really what I'm going to focus on in a
0: moment here. And is that uh, what we're seeing now? Is that what we're seeing now, the potential yeah, exactly. of a that's vanilla recession? Now. Is that Precisely. what you're putting forward?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I think this is the first time in 20 years we're seeing a sort of… The normal recession or or economic slowdown, which is due to sort of an overheating economy, both from the labor front and from the sort of uh, capital front and inflationary fears and interest rates getting put up, etc. So let's go into the sort of that type of of economic cycle. And I tend to break up the economic cycle into four phases. I start this analysis at the low point of the recession when things are really bad but they start to become slightly less bad. You know, you're still in a recession, but the delta, the sort of change at the margin is getting less bad, is slight, slightly improving. And so that I call this the first phase of the economic cycle is, is the second half of the recession. Then ultimately, let's just say growth does become less bad and starts to get to a point where in fact it goes slightly positive. That's what I call the growth phase of the economic cycle. Mm-hmm. And that tends to last on average and by the way, everything i 'm going to say here is very stylized it 's very on average now, no cycle is average you 've just got to work out you know what 's different about you this particular cycle but it 's quite nice to have a framework you know a standardized framework to work from as a starting point so on on balance the sort of the growth part of the economic cycle where you 've got growth recovering into positive territory lasts for about two years. And then at some stage, people start to get the impression that this growth cycle is getting nice sort of momentum to it because for the first first while that you're in the cycle, you worry about slipping back into a double-dip recession. You know, every now and then, some of the economic indicators like uh, something called the PMIs or the ISM indices slip back from this sort of massive bounce that they've had, and you get a central bank that raises interest rates because you no longer need these recession-like Low interest rates. So people don't really have confidence that this economic growth has got sort of longevity. But after a while, enough jobs are created that the real thing that gives economic cycles strength and tenacity is job growth and personal income growth. And there comes a stage when people say, okay, we can see that personal income growth is now strong enough because enough jobs have been created that this. Economic expansion has legs to it and has sort of and, – and people start to think that central bankers have sort of discovered the holy grail and that this economic upcycle and expansion will go on forever.
0: Okay, just to interrupt you here, you really have put your macro hat on here, Chris. At the moment, I mean, recently the Bank of England has raised interest rates in the United Kingdom by half a percent, the biggest incremental rise for 27 years or something. And they say, but we're going to be getting a recession. But when I look at the big picture, having spoken to clever chaps like, like you, I say to myself, the difference is, when you talk about recession now, is that Balance sheets, both corporate and household, are in quite a good position at the moment, so there won't be a yeah, recession. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that's just me. That's not 91 no, talking you, here.
1: You can still get a recession. I mean, you can. But look, it doesn't really matter whether the sort of exact semantics of it, you know, whether it's a sort of a slowdown, economic slowdown to growth that's significantly below trend growth or it actually dips into negative is is neither here nor there, really. What we're talking about is an economic slowdown. And as you say, everyone right now is trying to, the game in town right now is to try and work out how deep the slowdown is going to be, how bad it's going to be, and how long it's going to go on for. I buy your view that because the banking sector, the banks are in good shape, Mm. corporates are not over-geared, and consumers, those that held their job during COVID, also in reasonable shape so i think the broad consensus view is in fact that the sort of below trend growth that we're going to get is not going to be particularly severe but that we're not going to escape this this sort of an economic slowdown per se
0: okay so it's a fascinating story between the relationship between the stock market and the economic cycle just very briefly for the last minute before we get on to point number two what do you think the market is saying Uh, when i say the market i mean the equity market the in a in a broad sense what is it saying versus what media outlets are saying about the economy? Tell me about the relationship between the two right now. Sure,
1: sure, sure. So, so just quickly going back to the sort of various phases. So the first phase of the economic cycle, when you're at the low point of the recession, you've got to do something that's counterintuitive. You've, you've got to go and buy the lowest quality shares you can find. With the weakest balance sheets, because they tend to be, those share prices tend to be absolutely trashed by the sort of economic recession. They're very low. And, but the thing is, if growth is going to come, then I always use the cliche any damn turkey can fly with a hurricane behind it. So so you, you go and pick the weakest shares you can find because they tend to go up, they tend to double. Now, we've already passed that phase. Or, you know, sometime in in actually, sort of, I would say in early uh, late late to 2020, early early 2021, we passed that phase. It tends to last for about eight months. You then buy once growth starts to actually get some traction to it, and and, and actually you do go positive. You know, there isn't really a style bias towards the value type of shares work well, growth oriented shares work well, and we we have what's called earnings revisions based shares. They tend to do okay. Once you get into the sort of expansion phase where people think growth is going to go on forever. Now, we we haven't had one this particular. Well, actually, we had had a a version of it, but we don't really have time to go into it now. Then you you tend to go into those really sexy shares. The IT shares had a good go at that stage. But now, to answer your question directly, now we're in that phase of the cycle where, as we said, people are anxious about a massive growth slowdown. The, The shares that tend to protect you. At this stage of the cycle are what we call the high quality shares. Those companies that are that produce high free cash flow, that have got high returns, return on equity, for example, they're, um, they're very profitable companies. They are not very cyclical. They are often a f- uh, sort of utility, food, beverages, defensively orientated companies. They just go down by less at this stage of the cycle. They, they protect you. What doesn't protect you now is low PE. Low PE just goes to lower PE. You've got to find <laughs> high dividend yield shares and dividends that are sustainable. So commodity shares are right now. They're all high dividends, but I wouldn't bet my house on those dividend yields being sustainable if commodity prices you know, take a hit in this economic slowdown that's coming. You, you've got to go for more, as I say, more um, personally, you know me, I like a lot of the The South African shares, the more currently alike banks and retailers, because many of them are on dividend yields of, I don't know, somewhere around seven, six to eight, let's say. And I don't see those dividend yields disappearing, even if there's an economic slowdown. As, you know, there would be rising really stable. Th- so That's one thing that's about the South
0: African uh, domestic stocks, whether it be banks, whether it be financial services as a generality, whether it be retailers. They are very, very resilient, even <laughs> even though that the South African economy is doing badly after the PMI figures, for example, that we've had recently in the Republic of South Africa. So what you're saying is that you're sticking to your guns, and when you mention commodities, for example, the cyclicality yeah. of commodities, and therefore the cyclicality of commodity stocks in south africa related to the dollar price of commodities i'm talking personally now they look in a bear market to me i mean if you take the bear market being 20 25 percent down from their highs if you take a group of commodities all put together
1: absolutely they're they're in a bear market but this is stock standard stuff this is what happens at this stage of the cycle as you roll over i mean the thing that was different about this cycle one of the things was different about this cycle is that Central bankers were unbelievably late in starting to hike interest rates mm. for a couple of reasons. One is they thought it easier to fix inflation than deflation, and they'd witnessed, you know, what happened in Japan for the last 30 years, and they said, we don't want to go through that, thank you very much. So, we, we, you know, we'd rather be late than early. And then secondly, they'd been predicting inflation. At or above two percent in the developed markets in the in the first world for many years, and and it was never getting there. So they they were, they were losing street cred about the sort of inflation is coming here. So for for both those reasons, they were a hell of a late, and we missed what I call the good news interest rate hikes, where it's just confirmation of eco, economic growth that's sort of you know getting some momentum, and we went straight into what I call the bad news interest rate hikes, which are to to slow down. Overheating economies, and we've sort of had a massively concertina or accelerated cycle. But we are where we are, and we're now staring at the at the sort of slowdown. And I would say it's too early to start anticipating the next economic upcycle. We've still got to grind through a good few quarters of sort of slowing economic. Data before we can start to think about things becoming less bad in my sort of scenario, in my cycle where I started.
0: Okay, I despair about uh, as central bankers. And again, this is my opinion, not yours. I think that you raise interest rates by, for example, a half a percent in the UK. Uh, the Bank of England says half a percent. What does this mean? Okay, you sort of suggested that they may be behind the curve or a little bit late if you raise interest rates by half a percent does that mean you have to stop buying food or you will stop buying food does that mean you stop putting petrol in in your car i think it's a blunt instrument but that's just me and let's not develop that theme Investment philosophies or oh, I'm styles. I'm glad you
1: got that off your chest.
0: Yeah, it's definitely off my chest, and uh, <laughs> I'm glad that you're not commenting upon it. Uh, investment philosophies <laughs> or styles, you've sort of covered that a little bit, but that's the second point of yeah. your excellent piece. Yes. Tell me a little bit more about that uh, before we oh, get on to sector know, considerations.
1: Sure, everyone's born differently. Everyone has a slightly different you know, psyche and view to to how you should invest, and there are... There are sort of four or five major investment styles that, that you can adopt. You can adopt the one that we all learn at university, you know, this Graham and Dodd value approach. You know, work out the sort of net present cash value of any stream of, of cash flows that a company may produce and compare that to the current share price. And if it's, if it's lower then you buy and if it's higher, you sell. So that's the sort of value philosophy. You then get the growth philosophy where people say, no, well, you know, what you should do is just buy high-growth companies. And it doesn't matter if you buy them if they're slightly overpriced because they're growing so fast that over 10 years, you know, you'll do very well. You then get the sort of price momentum philosophy where you just buy the shares that have been doing very well. And by the way, although it's intellectually impoverished potentially as an investment philosophy, it works. But it only works in the short term, and you have to sort of change your portfolio a lot. So that one also has its issues. And you then get what I call the Holy Grail for me, what works for me and for, for 91 Yes. in the area that I look after. And that's what I call the earnings revisions philosophy, where you look for companies where – no matter if the forecast earnings growth is low or high, you don't care if the company's going to grow by five percent or twenty-five percent. All you care about is going from twenty-five to thirty or
0: from five to ten. And that is not sector specific or stock specific. No, no. It, it's just if it, if someone comes out and says to you, Chris, and passes something across your desk and say, Listen, this company has revised its earnings by twenty-five to thirty percent for the next six months. You have. A look at it. And it doesn't matter whether it's agri, which I know you dislike, uh, or whether it's, a, or whether it's a retail yeah. Yeah. or banking. Yeah. This is a 91 philosophy, which has served you so well hello, over the you know, years. We've
1: got a couple of sort of different areas, equity areas at 91. We have got a deep value area of guys who I think they're all born depressives, deep value, <laughs> you know, and, and they just and they just make money when the markets fall by less. And what really hurts them is being sort of having an overweight equity position when markets fall. What really hurts me is having being underinvested when markets rise. That kills me more. <laughs> so anyway, you know we have those guys in our office and, and we have growth as sort of a quality investors as well, which is more of a long-term focus. I personally don't have a lot of patience. So to me, the long-term is made up of a series of short-terms. So I'm not in the quality camp either. I'm I'm in with Hannes and I in a 91, the
0: sort of the firmly in the earnings revisions at reasonable valuation. Hannes van okay, yeah, exactly, you're you, you, yes, your yes, colleague. So, you, so essentially no, you're sitting just, on the fence between the growth and the value no, investors. No, we're not
1: sitting on the fence. No, no, we're firmly on the sort of earnings growth improving camp, but just don't pay a completely ridiculous multiple for it. That's That's our camp. Yeah, so I could never be a valuation man. As I say, they just you know they they make money once every sort of five years when the markets fall, and they fall. They hardly fall, and otherwise they underperform. That's probably going to irritate some people. So then I think that's all we really should say on the philosophies. The the third point we should probably cover, Lindsay, with your permission, is some thoughts around thoughts around economic sectors. So. The, the first big sector you have to think about when you invest in the South African stock market is the resources sector because historically we've been a resource-based economy and hence a large portion of our stock market reflected that. And, you know. So you have to have a thought on how to invest in the resources area. Now, the first thing I would say is I would never buy a resource company, a commodity company, for my children's education and just put them in the bottom drawer and just say, well, when they you know get to varsity, it's, that's going to be worth a lot. I think they make really long t- lousy long-term investments because over time, commodity prices in dollars Go down, And I could show you various charts that would demonstrate that. that Yes,
0: but before you go on. In real terms. No, just before you go on, because I have to take you to task on this one. Sometimes there is a, not a, I hate the phrase super cycle, but occasionally commodity prices go up and they have been going up and it's only been in the last six months or so that they've started to come down. And as we said earlier on in this conversation, the commodity prices in dollar terms in general, as a as a broad-based asset class, have started coming down and have gone into a bear market. No, I, but don't, I don't think I, you I don't can me say that they're no, they're…
1: no, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't get me wrong. I didn't say hmm. you must never buy them. I okay. just said they make lousy long-term investments. If you get the cycle right, yes. they make wonderful short-term investments. They can double and triple in sort of 18 to 24 months if you get your timing of the economic cycle correct. And of course, I spent a career trying to do that, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully, but I don't give up on it because they are so geared and they're so cyclical that they go up and down ahead of a lot. you just got to be in there the right time, is my point.
0: You've got a couple of colleagues that have other, done well out of that philosophy, by the way.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. And I've got lots of people who, who help me at the office who know more about it than I do, um, hmm. who, who sort of hold my hand. One of the other points I'd like to make about the resources sector is that, is that paradoxically um, many people think that if they expect the rand to weaken, they must buy resource or commodity shares because obviously, if you're selling coal in dollars in international markets, you get more rands for your coal as as it weakens. Okay, so this is you know one oh one. But the problem with that theory is that if you actually do the the stats and if you look, that in fact on balance. Commodity shares underperform when the RAND weakens. Now, that doesn't make intuitive sense, given what I've just said. But the reason why commodity shares underperform when the RAND weakens is when does the RAND weaken? When commodity commodity prices prices, fall. When commodity prices are falling. Precisely. And that the dominant driver of commodity shares is the dollar price of commodities, not the converted RAND price of commodities. Ultimately, of course, that has to come come into play. But… You know, if if the dollar price is going down, even if the rand is weakening, you will tend to lose money on resource shares. So that's one thing I I would have. And then last point on resource shares is that you can ignore demand and supply models. You know, these these analysts come with 100-line demand supply, and at the end of this work, they say it's going to be in the the market. The platinum market is going to be in deficit of 3%, and therefore the price is going to go up. I, I don't buy that at all. I think the only thing that moves commodity prices is changes in commodity demand. There are times, you know, witness, we've just seen a big one now with Russia invading uh, Ukraine mm. where changes, see changes in oil supply move the oil price. But on balance, it pays to just look at changes in demand and ignore supply when it comes to resource shares. One last point about resource. I know I said one last point, but here's another counterintuitive one, Lindsay. Yes. Is that normally you should sell resource shares when they are optically very cheap. When they're cheap, you should sell them, and when they're expensive, you should buy them. Now, again, you, you say, Chris, have you lost your marbles? But the point is that if you use PEs as your yardstick, if the PE is very low, it means the E is very high. The earnings, the company's pregnant with earnings. And the company's pregnant with earnings when the commodity price it happens to sell is doing very well and has, and has gone up a lot. And what tends to happen when the commodity price has gone up a lot is the next move is down. And I just said the thing that moves commodity prices is the direction of the dollar commodity price. And so even if it's looking hell over cheap, if it's on a 4 PE. If the dollar price starts to fall, it'll actually still fall. So I guess here ended the lesson on resource shares. Yeah, you got that off your you, chest, didn't others, you? If you think I feel firmly about that one, this sector, the agricultural sector. Oh, you hate I it. Have, you hate it. I've lost more money in the agricultural sector than I've had hot breakfasts <laughs> in the sense that I hate it because it's, it's, it's so unpredictable, you know.
0: So why did you invest in it, it in the first place?
1: Well, I was young and stupid. And, you know, for example, fishing company. I remember losing a lot of money many years ago buying Iron Jack. Oh, yeah. And… It was going swimmingly, so to speak, and, you know, the results were out in a couple of months, and I checked with the company management and after their, their public results announcements that, no, it was all going well. <laughs> and then, lo and behold, they come out with a shocker of a result. And I said, well, what happened? They said, we just couldn't find the fish. The fish that come, the fish that
0: go. Okay, well, don't no, get specific they... now, but what, you've got to, what you're got, what you saying is uh, you can't predict the weather, you can't predict the soil density, you cannot predict how many fish there are going to be in the Western Cape Great. because of uh, uh, all, all this sort of are get sick. unpredictables, whereas most of the, the sectors that you invest through. in, you as 91, in your strategy, you can at least try and predict, but agriculture, yes. it's all over the place. Yes. That's what you're saying. I and, don't... and
1: people say they Agriculture's cyclical. It's not cyclical because if it are no, cyclical, it's there's a cycle that you could try. It's just volatile <laughs> and it's unpredictable. Okay. So, so avoid the avoid the agricultural sector like the plague.
0: Let's try and wrap this up in the next five minutes. Sectors, okay. You don't like uh, agriculture, and I know you've got a <laughs> you're actually quite vociferous. I do like banks. I do like banks, okay. do like banks but just
1: but just know that they can be risky because people don't quite understand that. This sort of uh, leverage ratios, this sort of debt to equity ratios for a bank, by definition, has to be very high and they tend to have 10 to 20 times uh, leverage. So if something goes wrong and they don't have enough capital on their books, then it can go very badly. So I do like banks, but I paid – we've got a fantastic banks analyst at 91. Yes. He pays very close attention to the amount of capital on the bank's balance sheet and their liquidity management. So like banks, but there's some serious risk, both liquidity and capital – that you have to keep very big eyes on. But yeah,
0: before you go on, I mean, I'm, a, I'm just a layman, but from the years of uh, broadcasting and speaking to clever people like you mm-hmm. and at 91, is that their uh, capitalization is world-class and even though that the even though the economy yeah. has its ups and downs yeah. and mainly yeah. downs yeah. recently, they seem to do quite well, yes. or they maintain. Hundred percent right.
1: Hundred percent right. They
0: maintain their we uh, equilibrium. We have
1: excellent financial regulators. Exactly. We have wonderful banking and financial regulators.
0: Precisely. This Which is first
1: world, and it helps. Exactly.
0: A lot. So if the All economy right. ever does turn around, then the banks and the financial services sector will do incredibly well. Uh, another sector, please, before we get onto the wrap up. Okay. Cool. Well, first of all,
1: investment banks, you know, like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, City, Merrill's, whatever, mm. they are lousy investments because in the good times, the staff take all the cash in disproportionately large bonuses. And in bad times, the shareholders are just left picking up the can. So okay. I, I find those you should avoid. Insurance sector is, you can do well. It's just bloody complicated. It's really. It's really difficult to work at what's going on in an insurance company because management can make the earnings whatever they feel like. Um, and you, it's changes in the balance sheet that really are important in insurance companies, something called embedded value, but I won't go into that. Asset management can be good, but I've also learned people get confused between their own personal brands as, a, as an individual and, and as a company they work for. They think that they're a good fund manager, so they say, well, everybody loves me, and I'll go and start my own office at home. Put my name on the door and they hell of a surprise when no one actually comes to them. And all these people that thought they were a genius previously just don't arrive because really companies are very conservative with their retirement funding and they trust the big brands. Retail sector can do very well for you if you get your timing right. It's quite a cyclical sector. But don't forget that the companies sometimes get the fashion risk wrong. They're predicting that pink dresses are going to be the next big thing. And they just simply get it wrong and they have these massive write-offs. And then the weather sometimes, just like share, sometimes weather hurts these guys a little bit. You know, it rains too much in summer or it's too cold. It's, it is a hot winter or something like that. And they don't sell jerseys. So just watch that as well in the retail sector. But uh, you, you can make good money there as well. Small caps I don't particularly like. I mean, I, what's not too… Intuitively, we all want to buy a share that's got a very low price. Let's say it's less than a rand a share. It's like 50 cents a share, right. because you think that the chances of a 10-bagger are far greater when you buy a share at 50 cents than you buy a share at 50 rand. Okay, so that's the sort of seductive part of a small cap buying small shares. The problem is, though, and people do. Some people do this very well. I just don't. The corporate governance in small companies is often not what it should be, or not as good as large companies that have got, you know, an audit committee or a remuneration committee. They tend to be dominated by one makula boss who started the company, who bosses the board around. So the risks in a small cap can can can, can be quite high because corporate governance is not what it should be. So I guess that's uh, the end of some views on – I've got a few other views, but that's most of them on sectors.
0: I think you uh, put forward your, your views, and actually you've been um, – quite forthright in your views. The final paragraph I'm looking at, I think it's slide number 46 or 47, it says here, appreciate that luck plays a big role. Well, of course it does, but on the (laughs) other hand, I think 20, 30 years of experience also plays a big role as well. And you talk about both bad and good luck. What you're saying here you're still learning. I mean, even speaking to people like me, oh, and speaking yes. to uh, you, your colleagues and uh, other people at dinner parties and that sort of thing, you're still learning every day, Chris Freund. Right? geez are you kidding.
1: You go to your grave learning here You go to your grave not sure that you you you, you know how it works, and you've spent thirty, forty years trying to do it." Mm. But I mean, and this lack thing is important here because. You know, we, we kid ourselves in this industry often, you know, when things go. I remember not owning SAB many years ago when it was bought out by anheuser Yeah, and cursing my bad luck because, in fact, if it hadn't been an acquisition, it would have been a jolly good idea not to own it because SAB was particularly struggling at that time. And it was, and it was the share price wasn't going to go anywhere without this acquisition and there'd been talk about this acquisition for years and it'd never come off and it was a risk that i knew about i've been talking about this since i was 26 years old yes. so you remember that you just remember when you get lucky like make a mental note of it and i'll tell you one last quick story is that when i joined what was then investing asset management in 2006 right so for the first four months it went reasonably well i think they thought you know we've got a good one here <laughs> but then there was a massive emerging market crisis as we used to have every two years uh, in the sort of 90s and 2000s. And Edgar's went to hell in a handbasket. I don't, I don't know if you, if you remember that. And the whole retail sector 2006. Hmm. And there were massive meetings organized at Investec about what to do with Chris's portfolio. And I was busy dusting off my CV. And lo and behold, bain consulting or bain came and made an offer out the blue for edgar's at about a 40 percent premium Mm. it not only lifted the edgar's shares i had it lifted all the other retail shares i had and quite frankly it saved my career (laughs) um and i've never forgotten that moment and i've always tried to just have some cognizance of when you get lucky as well as just moan about all the bad luck you
0: have in investments chris such an illuminating and also frankly brutally honest chat informative and entertaining as well chris Freund is the co-head of sa equity and multi-asset at 91 in cape town the views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of lindsay williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy position